This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be able to take a little time and stop and ponder some of these great themes that you have for us in the gospel message. We ask that you would lead and guide and direct and bless us and and direct the things that we need to understand. May you be with us, Lord, we pray, with a portion of your Holy Spirit upon us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be an intimate group. I'm used to that. Um, I'm pastor at the uh, New Start program in Weimar, and we have about 20 to 30 and so I, every morning at 7 o'clock, I'll have a small group. When you got 30 people, only about half of them are going to show up at 7 in the morning. So this is not too indifferent for me. Um, the will of faith. I, I spoke a little bit about last night, and it was difficult for me because it's an 11-part series. And so when we get done, Mary will be able, she'll tell you some ways that you can get the rest of it. But um, I had a hard time choosing which 11 Because it's boiled down to the fundamental principles of the everlasting gospel. I can't leave none of it out. So I chose to leave the last two out, which is how the Sabbath and the law relate to the gospel. So that's, you can get that later. And then the first two, I talk about the love of God, which is step number one, if you're in steps to Christ. And then I talk about how it's uh, in the Old Testament, how it's revealed through Ezekiel 16. And then I talk about how it's revealed at Calvary. So we're going to have to start with that knowledge already. So I have to do away with those two. And then there's two I crunched together. So in our second lecture today, I'm going to really be tight to get the... I couldn't, I couldn't choose between them. They're just, you can't go without either one of them. So I came down to the six, and I chose these six a couple of months ago. And I'm glad I did because... Listening to the theme for uh, the session, which is everyone is talking about going out and doing missions, doing work in your local town and receiving the Holy Spirit. That's been the steady idea and thought process. And so I got to think about the six that I chose. You, they're so important because you cannot receive the Holy Spirit. You'll never have the desire to go out and do missions or do your work in your local town or, or be this in your family without these first six steps. It's impossible. In fact, the Holy Spirit that we're looking for, the latter rain that we're looking for, only comes when we have the first idea of the gospel, those first six steps that we must take. Then the Holy Spirit will come automatically, and the work will automatically come in our life. So that's why I chose these six, um, and I'll pray that you'll be, you'll be blessed by that. So when I'm talking about the will of faith, that's what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the gospel. This is something I came up with. It's really a rubric just to be able to teach. And the first step is always um, right here. It's always the love of God. When you're in steps to Christ, and that's what I use as my parameters, because when you're talking about the gospel or righteousness by faith or the 1888 message, there's all those pitfalls, all those controversial topics that people get into, and it ruins the discussions. So when you stay in steps to Christ, you stay out of those ditches. And so the will of faith is based on steps to Christ, the first eight chapters of Romans. It's on Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the most terse place where you can find the gospel laid out step by step. The whole thing is right there, really in one verse. And so we're going to refer to that and then some places in Galatians and some other um, 
quotes from Ellen White and selected messages in other places, but generally the quotes are all taken from Steps to Christ. And so we're going to have to start with the knowledge that God's love was revealed at Calvary. We need to start there. And usually I do a whole lecture on the cross and really what was paid for, for our, our ransom. And more particularly, he died the second death or he had the experience of the second death. And so from there, we go into today's topic. In Ezekiel chapter 16, it's usually where I spend an entire lecture because it's, it's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And Ezekiel 16 is all about the story of God's love for mankind, told in a parable of a child that is thrown out into an open field. Nobody wants this child. And God comes along, he finds this child, and he raises it, and he clothes her, and he feeds her, and she becomes extremely beautiful, and her fame goes out, and there's this great relationship between God and this woman, and then the woman turns her back on God, breaks covenant with him, and she becomes a prostitute, and she becomes this terrible person. And in Ezekiel 16, God tells her what she deserves. What should happen for breaking the covenant is death. But then he comes in verse 63, and I like to pick up on this. Verse 63, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. When I provide you an atonement for all that you have done, says the Lord. So in Ezekiel, we start that idea that God is going to provide an atonement for mankind. And so the cross is obviously, when we think of the atonement, we think of Calvary. We think that he came and he paid the penalty for, for our transgression. He died our sins for our sins. But the death of Christ is only half of the atonement. And if you only understand the atonement in terms of Calvary and you don't understand the other part of it, you really don't understand the atonement. And if you don't understand the atonement and what he's done for us, then you can never truly receive the Holy Spirit. Because when we get there tomorrow afternoon, the very thing that we need to receive the Holy Spirit is based upon what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to come back to this topic tomorrow afternoon. And when you get this topic, man, you're going to understand this is what I need to receive the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to talk about uh, the second lecture and our first few lectures tomorrow. We're going to talk about how to receive this, how to engage it, how it can actually become part of what we are, how we can have a true experience of the gospel, not just an intellectual idea of the gospel, but how we can experience it. And we experience it, believe it or not, on this side of what we would call the Holy Spirit. And, or what we would call sanctification, this side of the gospel, what we would call justification, is how we engage God so that we can receive the Holy Spirit, be sanctified, go out and do our work to the end of the world. And so that's why I start here with this second idea of the atonement. And I want to go to a scriptural text that brings out these ideas about the, how God would provide the atonement outside of Calvary's cross and paying for our sins through his death. Right, so this is First John chapter 2, verse 1. And John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now there's a lot of technical words there, but these words are all outside of Calvary. These words have other implications. The advocate, uh, Jesus Christ... Righteousness and propitiation. We're going to look at those words and those terms in light of the atonement and find out how deep they have and the meaning that they have uh, for you and I today. So I want to look at that. In, and I told you all yesterday or last night when I introduced this quickly, with, we had 45 seconds. So I was like, how am I going to introduce this? Because the gospel is really the third angel's message. 
right? The three angels' message has a prophetic side, but we're also told in great controversy it's the gospel. And we usually hyper-focus on the prophecies, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, right? 20, 30 years, the judgment. But there's also, in context of the prophecy, the reason why prophecy is given is because the gospel's got to go forth. And so when you look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, usually we focus on verse 7. Which says this, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas and the springs of water. And so we usually focus on the judgment and we think of the 2300 years, we think of 1844, but that's prefaced with verse six. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue and people. So there's something about the gospel that has to do with the judgment. There's something about the judgment other than just the mathematics of it, figuring out 1844. There's something very profoundly important about the judgment that the gospel takes care of that those words in John have everything to do with our advocate, propitiation, righteousness in Christ. And that's what the atonement is all about. And if we understand the atonement, then we can understand how to really receive the Holy Spirit, which is what we're all wanting and why we came to GYC in the first place. So, when we look at Revelation 14, verse 7, it's telling us that there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment looming for all of mankind. And I think that we've probably had that uh, preached to us enough to understand the importance of it, right? In other words, there is a court case coming for every mankind. The finest lawyers are not going to be de- able to deliberate for us. The evidence is going to be pure, perfect, and pristine. The judge is going to be perfect in his deliberation. The jury, the onlooking witnesses are going to have a perfect, complete, total knowledge of the case of every man, woman, and child that's ever lived on planet Earth. In earthly courts, you are innocent until proven guilty. In this court, you are guilty until proven innocent. We all, every Adam, child of Adam, every daughter of Eve, are brought up on charges of treason against the Most High God. That's our case. And there's much more to beat in this case. There's much more to this atonement than Christ died for my sins on Calvary. We have to understand what these words are so that in that judgment, when my name, when my case comes up before the Most High, I know exactly what the issues are. And then we're going to talk later about how to engage those issues. Daniel talked about this judgment, and he brings some uh, awesome reverence to the idea of it in Daniel chapter 7. Again, one of these texts that we usually use only to talk about the rise of this beast. But Daniel goes a little bit deeper, and there's something much more important here. In Daniel chapter 7, he talks about the judgment. And I want to go at it from a little bit of a different uh, angle. And I want you to think about the description of this judgment, not just that there is a judgment, which we usually use as text to, to prove, but to look at really what it is we're going before. Our life record, what is it it's actually going to stand before that starts to bring some levity and weight and seriousness to the idea of the judgment other than it started in 1844. 
Listen, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I mean, here is a scene of the eternal, majestic, pure, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, living God. A God that no man can look at. A God that no being can stand before. This is a picture of complete, pure, righteous, living being. With all the onlooking universe before, and the court is seated, and your life record is open before that court. That's what Daniel is saying. And to bring even more weight to it, oh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes really puts some fear in it, doesn't he? He says, hey... Let's get down to the brass tacks. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of a man. And what does he say in that verse 14? For God will bring into work, into judgment, every work, every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. End of story. He closes his record. He writes no more after that. In other words, there is a judgment coming in which every thought and act and word and intention and emotion of Curtis Damon Sneed It all gets portrayed there. Now, I don't know about you, but that terrifies me because most of the evil things and sins that I've done, I I have enough problems dealing with the things in recent memory. But what about the things that I've forgotten? What about all the things that I've ever committed, that I've ever thought from the time that I was a little boy? All those thoughts, all those ideas, intentions, actions, and deeds, that is what Revelation 14 is trying to tell us. That the judgment has become not just that you got the mathematics right and you know that Christ moved from one holy place to the most holy place. That's good to know. But that you, myself, my life is about to be under extreme scrutiny. And you need to know how to get through that. And consequently, getting through that is also the way we receive the Spirit and all these other wonderful things that we're looking forward to happening. So we get two great things out of that. Revelation 14 is telling us that judgment has commenced. And because that judgment has commenced, know the gospel. That's verse 6, right? The everlasting gospel is the answer to the fearfulness of Revelation 14, 7, the judgment. And when we understand there's a judgment, I know a lot of people get fearful and they don't want to hear about the judgment no more. But the promise is in verse 6, there's an everlasting gospel that goes forth. So proclaim that gospel. And it's that what we seem to have forgot to proclaim. We proclaim Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome all the time. We talk about Daniel. We talk about Revelation, the judgment. We talk about the beast. And, but we forget to tell people how to get through that. And so that's all that I want to do is really proclaim to you the gospel aspects of the three angels' message. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, we usually focus on, remember the decree from God? The day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And that is the problem, we think. Well, that's the big problem of mankind. They did eat. They disobeyed. They're going to die. And we disobey. And we're all going to die. But before the death penalty came, before that condemnation came, there was another commandment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 says it this way. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So before... The condemnation of death came. There was a commandment to obey. 
And obedience is what the judgment is about. We already know we're disobedient, we're worthy of death, but the judgment is also about obedience. It's also about someone having to live for us. There's also about a righteousness that we have to have. Someone has to obey God's original commandment and live it out. Eternal life for Adam was not based on faith. Do you know that? Before he sinned, his eternal life was based on his own inherent righteousness, his own capacity to do good, his own capacity to obey what God had said. As long as he obeyed God, we call it the obligatory covenant. Before the covenant of faith existed, there was a covenant of obligation. Do this, Adam, and you shall live. Right? Do the things I've asked you to do. And in his entire eternal life, his Eve and all of his children could have been secured throughout all of eternity by their own righteousness, their own ability to obey. Obedience is what it's all about. And disobedience is the problem that we all have. Listen to this. It was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. But he failed to do this, and because of his sin, our natures are fallen, and we cannot make ourselves righteous. Since we are sinful, unholy, we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. We have no righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. That's Steps to Christ, page 62. So she's, she's beginning to set us up for the understanding that the original problem wasn't death. The original problem was obedience. And that's what the atonement has everything to do with. We already know that he died from our sins, which is the consequences for being disobedient. But what about his life? And how does that deal with the requirement that's still there that someone has to obey? Someone has to fulfill the righteousness of the law. And we get this from the beginning that we cannot because we have already sinned. We have already messed up. In fact, Genesis 5, 3, you remember Adam was created in the image of God? And in that image, he had the capacity to do whatever God said freely of his own will. But when Seth came along, the record says he was created in the image of his father. And Seth and every child after that has that same problem. We're all created in the image of our father and the image of his father. And we all have broken, fallen natures that render it impossible to live up to the requirement of the law that grants eternal life. Adam sinned and his posterity became sinners. As related to the first Adam, men received from him nothing but guilt and the sentence of death. And that's what Romans 3 verse 19 is trying to help us understand. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. The entire world is arraigned before God as treason against the Most High. The entire world, every man, woman, and child that's ever lived has a case pending with the Most High as treason and rebellion. We're all in disobedience against God. And there are some that teach, well, once we get everything right, then we can become perfect and we get it all right. We can live up to our own standard of righteousness and somehow God will look at that and accept that. But we got to look at it uh, from the biblical point of view. The punishment is death, but the issue really is obedience. That's what the atonement is all about. Someone has to come up with some obedience. And we have been taught in some circles that that's what we are going to do. We're going to learn how to become super obedient so the Holy Spirit will fall. And then we can go out and fulfill our commission when we learn to be obedient. That's why all the pep rallies are all about. 
You got to get out and go, 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 do, 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 do. You just got to go and do it. And when you do it, then the Holy Spirit will fall. Well, we're going to look at it. We've got a real problem with doing. And here's another troubling theological statement we're going to come back to. This is from First Selected Messages. The Lord requires no less of the soul now than he required in of Adam in paradise before he fell. Perfect obedience, unblemished righteousness. The requirement of God under the covenant of grace is just as broad as the requirement he made in paradise. Harmony with his law. I've had that read to me as a young man and I thought, well, that's terrifying. If the requirement is the same perfect obedience and you've heard that right we've got to learn to become perfectly obedient we've got to learn to become perfectly righteous and when we can do that then God can get about finishing this business of the world so what is the way out does Jesus pay the death penalty right I accept that by faith the disobedience that earns me death he paid for and now it's time for me to get serious with Jesus to become obedient to him and then to live up to that righteousness and then he looks at it and says wow he's really been transformed and changed he's righteous he's good he's changed he's perfect now I can I can justify him now I can bring him into my kingdom now I can fill him with my Holy Spirit is that really how it works in fact Revelation 14 Revelation 14 is an answer to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 talks about a false day of worship, right? And Daniel 7 talks about he shall think to intend to change times and law. And we get that. But if you read both Daniel and Revelation, there's more that the beast is doing than just trying to palm off a false day of worship. In both chapters, if you read a little further, that same power throws down the sanctuary or blasphemes the tabernacle in Revelation 13. Well, the tabernacle and the sanctuary were the place where the plan of salvation was revealed. And that same power that would think to change times and law also has a phony righteousness. They call it infused righteousness. In other words, by faith and grace, you accept what Christ has done and then God comes into you and infuses within you your own righteousness. So you have a quality of righteousness within you that you develop, and God looks at that righteousness at the end of time and says, ah, justify them, pour my spirit upon them, save them. That's the false, phony, counterfeit system of righteousness. So Revelation 14 comes along and says, no, 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 no. There is a real righteousness out there that you actually have to have. Not your own righteousness that you develop through your good efforts and works. That's always been the false, phony system. But we are hyper-focused on the false day. The false day has a false way with it. So we got to be careful and understand that there's only one way to receive the kind of righteousness that the law demands for a perfect obedience that we might have eternal life. And so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that tomorrow. And Paul answers that perfectly. He bails us out in Romans chapter five. He doesn't just leave us with, "Okay, Jesus died for your sins. But Paul talks about something else that he did that you have to understand. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, one of these beautiful texts. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. We got that, right? Adam sinned. I got to die. He died for me. But now listen to what he says. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men into justification of life. Justification of life is based upon not only his death, but also his life. So also by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, 
many will be made righteous. Now, a good Catholic will say, see, right there. Right there, when you stand before the law of God, he will have infused righteousness into you, made you righteous, and he looks at that righteousness within you and says, ha, justify him. But the word does not mean that at all. We got to be careful with words. We are made righteous by his righteousness. It says that clearly. And the word for made righteous clearly conveys that. It's the word katahistami. It's a compound Greek word. Kata is the preposition. It means according to. And the word histami or istami, it means standing, to stand. According to standing is what the word means. According to standing, according to the standing of one man, your standing is righteous. According to his righteousness, you are righteous, is what the text is saying. That's what it means to be made righteous. It's another man's righteousness. It is never my righteousness that the law is looking for. In fact, we're going to look at another word, when I have that righteousness, right? When I have catechistomy, according to my standing, when my standing before the law, because the law is condemning me, it's got me at the age of four years old, best I can remember. And probably according to Paul, way back before that. The law is done condemned to me. It's done show me that I don't have righteousness. I'm a violator. And so far, Paul is saying, well, there's another righteousness over here that you can have. Not yours, but it's someone else's. And if you have that righteousness in this judgment, Paul uses another word. The word for justification or justification of life, as he said, is takayo. It's the same word for righteousness, but it simply means in today's terms, it means you are set free. You are called not guilty. You're justified. You're looked at as righteous. So how can God take his righteousness and in the courtroom scene, right, proclaim me justified, free? Because he uses another word. Well, let's look at his next word. I like this word. It's a fancy little word. He uses it in Romans chapter 4. It's the word logoziomai. And it means to impute or to declare or to accredit. And he uses it in Romans 4 when he's talking about Abraham. And it's in connection with Romans 3, so it flows really well. In Romans chapter 4, he's talking about Abraham. And he says, for if Abraham was justified, the same word that he uses in chapter 5, right, we're justified by his righteousness. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was Account it. That's the word logoziomai, imputed. It's the old King James way of saying it. It was imputed to him for righteousness. It means accredited to. That's the simplicity of the word. It's an accounting term. And it just simply means you don't have it. Someone else does and they gave it to you. They declared you to be righteous when you were not. That's what the great Luther used to say. That's imputed righteousness versus Rome's infused righteousness. Your own righteousness that you develop. And believe me, Adventists in certain circles have their own version of that. But Paul is clear that my righteousness is outside of me. It's someone else's. It's Christ. It's declared over me. It's imputed to me. And that imputation of his righteousness before the law justifies me. And that is how I beat the system. And one more little word we got to look at. We talked about the word propitiation. I like it. Right? We talked about it in the beginning. The word is hilasterion in Greek. And it just simply means a covering. Right? It's a covering. It's what the Ark of the Covenant, the lid on it, we call it, the nickname for it was mercy seat, but it was actually called the hilasterion, the propitiation or the covering. 
So what John is trying to say that we looked at in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that we have a righteous covering. Jesus Christ is my covering. He is my mercy seat. He is the covering that the law is looking for. The law is going to condemn. It's going to look at me and say, oh, no righteousness there. Even if today I acquired perfect, complete, and total righteousness, I still have 50 years behind me of unrighteousness that the law says, oh, well, look at yesterday. It will always condemn me in this way. And the law is saying, look, someone died for you, but also someone must live for you, Curtis Damon's need. He died for you. Who's lived for you? Where does your righteousness come from? You have to know where that comes from. Well, look at this tomorrow, because if you have that little credential, that's everything to the Holy Spirit. So my righteousness comes from him. And in the judgment, in the atonement, Revelation 14, verse 6, is telling you to go tell the world there's a judgment that's commenced. They are unrighteous and they need a righteousness. They only know about a death. Adventists are supposed to go tell the world that there is a righteousness to, to have had in Christ. Because our Roman friends will talk about the cross all day long, but they will never, ever concede to imputed righteousness. Another man's righteousness. They believe in their righteousness. Which in the Protestant world, it's got all kind of different facets, but it's the same thing. Most of the entire Christian world believes in some form of their own righteousness. Having something to do in the judgment with what saves me. And Paul is trying to help us understand this from the beginning. There is nothing but his righteousness alone and his death. Those two things form the concept of the atonement. And so when we look at Romans 3 now, with all those terms in our mind and the right idea, now we read Romans 3 with an exciting new way. Right? This is the Magna Carta of the gospel. I think of the whole scriptures. We should know Romans 3. We usually use it to proof text the law. You know, my, my first Bible I had, my old Bible, it was just tore all up around Romans 3, but it was about showing people that the law is valid. I never read just a few verses down in verse 24. Being justified, right, set free, freely by His grace, because He loves me, right? Unmerited favor through the redemption that is in Christ. So whatever Christ did is what justifies me. Now He tells me what Christ did that justifies me. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a righteous covering, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate whose righteousness? Capital H, personal pronoun, His righteousness. Never Damon Sneed's righteousness, no matter how good it is. His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, in case you didn't get it in the first verse, His righteousness. That He might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that is beautiful. It is always about his righteousness. Never mind. Listen to this. Now, I thought Ellen White said, well, wait a minute. We've got to live up perfectly to the law. It's still the same demand. Remember that other text we read? She said the, the requirement today is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden. Perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. And some run with that text and make me feel like, oh, I've got a long way to go. I'm glad he's not come back yet. But she qualifies that and she finishes that statement out. Yes, there is a demand for perfect righteousness still today in my life. But she never says, it's your perfect righteousness. Listen to the rest of the quote. By his perfect obedience, he has satisfied the claims of the law. It makes us nervous right here. But don't be, because we'll talk about this later. 
And my only hope is found in looking to him as my substitute and surety, who obeyed the law perfectly for me. By faith in his merits, I am free from the condemnation of the law. He clothes me with his righteousness, which answers all the demands of the law. I am complete in him who brings in everlasting righteousness. He presents me to God in the spotless garments of which no thread was woven by any human agent. I love it. She is a perfect Protestant right here. She's right along with Paul. It is his righteousness that God looks at in the judgment and says, justify him. It is never my perfect obedience. It's never my perfect law keeping. It's never perfection at the end of time that somehow I achieve and God says, whoo, they're finally righteous. It will always be his righteousness. And Hebrews 9.24 brings it together when it says, oh, I love Hebrews, man, here. I get it. I just get goosebumps. I get excited now. When I read Hebrews, I, I get it now. Hebrews 9.24 and I think Paul must have been when he wrote this. Hebrews 9, 24, he says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. And we usually focus on this text to say, see, he's moved. He went into the holy place at his resurrection, at his ascension. And then 1844, he moved into the most holy place. This is all true. But this text is much more about, about where he went and when he went, which is all relevant. We need to know where he went and when he went in 1844. We get that. But this text is about something much more. Hebrews is something about much more than proving to people that he's in the most holy place today. It's about what is he doing in the most holy place. And he tells us, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's what John was saying. He's the, he's the advocate. He's the advocator. He goes before God and there I am. My life is being condemned. My life record is being brought up. At some point in this hopefully soon future, the judgment leaves the time of the, the dead and goes into the living. Who knows? It could be going on now, right? And you need to understand this. At some point, my name is going to roll right up into that judgment. And I'm going to be called. Let's just say we know physically I'm not going to be there, but my life record is. So let's just say that I am there for fun's sake. Okay, court docket, whatever, 10,632,000. Curtis Damon Sneed, born in 1968 in Houston, Texas, come forward. And, and oh, by the way, bring your life record with him, and, and we bring it in, and, and it is like 10 miles high. Here's my air, it's everything. It's all right there. And I'm looking at it, and God says, Curtis Damon Sneed, you were brought up on charges of treason against the Most High God. The law has condemned you as a breaker, an offender of the great law. The, de- the penalty is death. What do you plea? Are you innocent or are you guilty? And I, and I look at my life record and I, and I poke my head out and I say, uh, I'm innocent. And the court would go, <gasps> like O.J. Simpson, remember that? Didn't he read on page two when he was four in Sugarland, Texas? He got kicked out of preschool for choking a kid. Did he, did, did he miss that somewhere? Did he miss chapter fourteen when he was seven? And what he was doing with his next door neighbor's little girl? Did he miss thirteen? Did he miss twenty? Did he miss God in heaven his 30s? We don't even want to look at that. Where, what did he miss? Why does he say innocent? And God says, Damon Sneed, why do you say you're innocent? And I say, look away from me, a sinner. I am not on trial. 
The righteousness of Christ is on trial and he has promised that if I call upon him, he will cover me with his righteousness and the law won't condemn me. That is what I must understand before he can come, before he can close his work, his intercession in the most holy place, God's people have got to know that in the judgment, their righteousness is in him and that's what they got to be calling out for. Because their life record is there for the world to see the universe. You know, the Bible says that in God there is no shadow of turning. I mean, there's no sun that throws a shadow over him. He is the sun. And when you're in his presence, there is no shadow. There's nowhere to turn. There's, there's nowhere to hide. It's all there. Everyone sees it. The books are opened. You can't fool no one. Well, Ecclesiastes made that clear, doesn't it? This is what I need. I need him to come up and say, oh, wait, stop everything. But there are going to be some that enter into that judgment. Promise you. There are going to be some good people that were really righteous men. I mean, there are some good men and good women in this world. I mean, they are righteous. They do great things. They, They were born and raised by great parents. They're good people. They're morally great people. They keep the law. They, I mean, I don't know if they sin very much. I know a few people that I'm like, man, I, those people are admirable. There are going to be some people that walk into that judgment hall. In fact, Matthew 13 tells us a story. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 13, tells us a story of this very scene, this very day of the judgment. But it uses a wedding parable. And you may know the story, right? There's a great wedding call. That's the judgment. And every man was given a clothing to wear, a garment, which represented Christ's righteousness. And all they had to do to get in there was put that garment on. They had to cry out for it. They had to call for it. They had to be covered in that righteousness. And there's a man. Everyone's in there in his righteousness. But there's a man that comes in there. And man, he is dressed to the nines. Shark skin suit, a pair of Lucchese boots. He's looking good, and he walks in there, and the and the the master of the ceremonies representing God takes one look at him. Says, "Get him out." Daniel five verse twenty seven. For you have been weighed in the balances, and you have been found wanting. There will be some that's going to come into that judgment hall with Christ's righteousness, but they're going to sew a little patch of their own on there. But Lord, look what we we did all of this. Bind them hand and foot and cast them out. Not one thread of human devising can be on that robe. Look, there is a place for goodness. There's a place for righteousness, but not here. Listen to this. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Because they know what real righteousness is. They know what real righteousness looks like. They have stood in the presence, the blazing presence of God. They have seen Christ who was the manifestation of that righteousness. They know what it is and they know what I am. And they would say, get out of here with that. There is a place for sanctification. There is a place for the Holy Spirit. There is a place for transformation. There is a place for being perfect in our sphere as he's perfect in his, but not in this scene right here. 
There is Romans 2 and James 2 that talks about an inward testimony, an evidence that the righteousness was real. There's a working out, there's faith, there's works. There's a place for that. We'll talk about that tomorrow where sanctification comes in, but not here. Don't go Catholic on us and start thinking that sanctification has something to do with what justifies you before God. It is always the proof, the evidence, the witness, but never the substance. It is always Christ and His righteousness. And if we get this, I'm going to take this topic tomorrow when we get to sanctification or the receiving of the Holy Spirit. What He's actually looking for. We heard it last night. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? We heard it last night. I heard all day yesterday. You got to pray. You got to want it. You got to pray. You got to want it. Uh, some truth to that, but it's there's something else that he's looking for, and when he sees that, the Holy Spirit's going to show up. But there are some conditions, and there are some steps that we got to take once we get this down, so that we can receive that Spirit. And that's what we're going to be talking about next, and then tomorrow morning. But now I want to end with a different trial, a different judgment scene. 2,000 years ago, there was another trial. Antonio Ciceri painted this painting. It's called Ecce Homo, means behold the man. And he painted this in the 1830s, 40s, somewhere in there. And he painted it to reflect the entire Christian world, the entire human world, really. This is a scene taken from Pilate's judgment hall. Christ is being brought up as treason against Rome, blasphemy against God, which is worthy of death. And he paints this painting so that we can all find ourselves somewhere in the painting. We're all there and everyone there is condemned and guilty. It's called Behold the Man. It's interesting, no one's beholding the man. You, you got the torturers to the left. He talks about these, the guy with their spear. They're called the torturers of Christ. These are the ones, the cruel Roman soldiers that are about to take him out and beat him. These are the enemies of the cross, he says. But James chapter 4 tells me this in verse 4, that if you are a friend of the world, you are the enemy of Christ. If you love its music, its food, its fun, its entertainment, if you love its sports, and, its, and if you love the world, you're an enemy of Christ. You're a torturer of Christ. You are there in the painting. You are guilty and condemned. There's the less subtle people. They're, they're the guy over here with his hand on his hips. Some have called him the, the lawyer, the politician. He, you can tell he's an official of the court. He's making sure Pilate does everything right so he can report back to Rome. That, that everything was done correctly. The politicians, you think our church has got too many politicians? Too much red tape, too much bureaucracy? It's condemnable before God. I like to look at... The guy on his tiptoes over here. He's called the curious onlooker. He's interested. He's not looking at Christ. He's in the room, though, with Jesus. But he's, he's, in, he's like looking, you know, at potluck. When you go through the potluck line and you've been through there three times, your belly's all full and you, you're walking around and you're just kind of looking at him. I don't want that. Nah, we just, you just kind of pass and you little dip. But I mean, this is what he's doing. I mean, this is a whole group of us. That are, uh, I'm in the room with Jesus, but I'm interested in all kind of other stuff. Everything else has got my attention out there. But the one that's heartbreaking that he paints is probably the woman turned with her hand on her maiden. This is Pilate's wife. She's the one that looks sorrowful. And we know that she's sorrowful. 
And, and she's the one that's probably the most condemnable of them all. Because God came to her and gave her a dream. He said, I have nothing to do with this man. He's a righteous man. And she knew her servants were followers of Christ. She was on the verge of conversion. She knew who he was, but she should have been painted at the feet of Jesus, pleading for his life. She was sorry, but not sorry enough to do anything about it. And that's one of the great problems of Christianity. We're sorry, but we're not sorry enough to quit. I feel bad that I don't go out and do missions, or I feel bad because my life ain't filled with the Holy Spirit. I feel bad because I don't go to church, I don't pay my tithe, or I don't go on time, or I never do my Sabbath. We're always sorry, but not sorry enough to quit. If you can understand today's topic, we're going to talk about how you can be sorry enough to quit tomorrow. Then there's Pilate. Oh, what, I mean, he paints him perfectly. The hand open, you don't have to see anything, but the gesture is saying, my God, what is wrong with y'all? He tried to let him go three times. But in the end, he capitulates because they threaten him with his job. That's what they do. And that, men, is one of the great big problems we have. We are not more involved with God. We're not more in, in tune with Him. We don't do more of His will because why? we got to make overtime. we got to make money we got to take care of business and life. Sometimes our life, our jobs, our positions mean more than what God has called us. We think that that 24-hour period is enough on Sabbath, but it's not. What about the faceless crowd? I love how Cesare paints them. They're faceless for a reason. This is the crowd who just before was crying out, Hosanna. This is the crowd of people that he healed their sick and and fed them and raised their lame to life and gave their blind sight and and raised the dead. And now they're crying out, crucify him. This is the crowd that he's not enough. Christ ain't enough. They needed him to be their king. They needed him to do more. Show us another miracle like a monkey on a string. Somewhere we are all there, painted well, but none more relevant to today than the man in the middle right here with his hand on the fence. Who do you think he might represent? He's got his body turned towards Jesus, his hands on the fence, and he's looking towards the crowd. Could there be a more fitting symbol of Laodicea? Not all the way in, not all the way out, just kind of... God's calling for us to be either in or out. All in or all out. You see, we're all there. At one time in our life, we could have gone through each one of these characters and been there. Maybe we're many of those characters. But nothing more heartbreaking than the man in the middle. Jesus sitting there, painted like a noble king. Quiet. Pilate has said, are you guilty or are you innocent? Oh, what do you say? You're being brought up on charges. What do you say? And he stands there like a silent, mighty God that he is, painted with this look of nobility, of kingly deity upon his face, and he's silent as the grave. Well, is he guilty or is he innocent? What does the scripture say? Is he guilty or is he innocent? He's guilty of sin. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He chose to become the second Adam. He chose to become guilty for us. He is condemned, rightly so, so that you do not have to be. 
He has been condemned to pay the penalty of death so that you might receive not only his death, but his righteousness. That it can be imputed to you, accredited to you, that God may justify you in the kingdom. And this is what the first angel's message is about as the gospel relates to the prophetic part. The prophetic part is, yeah, figure out in 1844 the judgment began. The gospel part is, hey, tell the world that there is a judgment coming and here's how to beat it. Through Christ, our righteousness. And if we get that, this is why it's called the loud cry of the third angel's message. We're to be crying to the world about his righteousness because the world is saying, no, our righteousness, the mystical esoteric movements going on all over the place where you can achieve this higher spirituality. That is everywhere. It all comes from mystery, from Babylon, from Rome. They're teaching the world that you can have your own righteousness. The Bible says, nope, you have none. Here is where you get it. Babylon has fallen. The fake gospel has been exposed. We all know that we're not righteous. And as much as the New Agers want to try to become righteous, they just become more and more unrighteous. Babylon is fallen. We are the last Protestant holdout Adventist. And this is the message. This is why the atonement in the sanctuary is so important. Not just to prove there's one in the heavens, but to show that there is a process, a courtroom drama being played out. And here is how to have righteousness. Here is how to beat the law that's condemning me right here in Christ. And if we get this, then we can take the next step next. And actually get to that place that we want to be. Death and his life equal the atonement. And it's crucial that we get it. Let's have prayer as we close. Our Father in heaven, we see that there is a powerful atonement. That there is a righteousness to be had in Christ and Christ alone. There is a judgment that you want to set us free from. Help us, God, we pray. To receive this righteousness that comes by faith and to bless us that our life record may be forgotten, dead and buried and gone. And that we may be clothed and covered in his righteousness. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, you'll have a few extra minutes than the break. If you come back after the break, we're going to talk about actually how to receive this. We got it. It's not just intellectual. There's something that you need to understand in the next step. And if, you, if you're following the steps to Christ, it's right there, chapter 2. Just go there. That's where Romans 2 is going to take us next. And it's how we can have a real desire to cry out for that righteousness. Thank you all so much for coming. I hope to see you all after the break. God bless. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.